This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 980, A Conversation with Ron Friends. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 980. It's a conversation with Ron Friends, or should I say it's the ninth conversation with Ron Friends. Uh, that's right. Uh, Ron uh, has uh, been gracious enough to uh, come back to the podcast for his ninth and potentially final visit uh, before the episode 1000, uh, where the show is likely going to be reaching its natural conclusion. So uh, there's never really nice to have him back on. Uh, in my mind, I'm still thinking maybe I could coax him into episode 1000 just for like a segment. But uh, this may be the final time you hear Ron Friends on the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Uh, so if you do want to check out the previous appearances, this is where you can go. You can go to episode 920, uh, where we specifically talk about his work on The Right Project, amongst other things, including varying covers, that kind of thing. That was episode 920. Episode 886, uh, this one we talked about Mark Grunewald, the comic industry, working with Roger Stern, Tom DeFalco, Sabasema, much more. We talked about Heroes Union number 1, uh, which came out back in August 2021. Uh, episode 776. Uh, it was a creator commentary where we talked about Amazing Spider-Man 280 to 281, Amazing Spider-Man 96, and Spider-Man Hobgoblin Lives 1 to 3. Episodes 748 and 744 were our much-beloved, uh, much at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, A-Next commentary where we, we talked about uh, A-Next issues 1 to 12 split out into two different episodes. 748 actually had uh, Tom DeFalco joining us uh, for episode issues 7 to 12, but uh, for issues 1 to 6 and 744, he was solo. Uh, episodes 734, we talked about uh, working on 10-page stories with Tom DeFalco uh, because he had just done the anniversary stories with uh, about uh, Spider-Man and uh, Thunderstrike. Uh, we talked about, sorry, he was also on episode 408, uh, which was much earlier. So it's actually, it's fascinating to me what, there was a giant gap there. Um, so his first, his second appearance on the show was episode 408 back in September 2016. It was just such a pleasure having him on. Uh, and then when, I, when he came back on, uh, it was almost three years later, uh, uh, where he came back on for his uh, what was that fourth appearance, and then uh, we or sorry his third appearance, and then we just kept it going. Uh, so he's had a total of six appearances in the last three calendar years, um, or sorry, last three full years if you look at it, uh, which is kind of crazy, uh, but very exciting as a, as a big fan of Ron's work. In some way, I think I've almost become a bigger fan of his work, just being able to talk to him about his work and really drilling down into it. Uh, and his first appearance on the show uh, is way back when, in episode 296 back in August 2015, um, when I was still relatively new at, I haven't heard that episode in a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm loath to, usually, it's funny, when I usually when I do interviews with people I've already talked to before, I go back listen to the previous interview because usually it's the second time um once it's the ninth time there might be some duplication and i apologize to everybody <laughs> um but usually the first time i have everyone on the show is usually when we do the more broad strokes of a career kind of moving forward uh through their career uh what's been really uh awesome with ron has been able to really dig down deep into certain aspects of his career do creator commentaries and also talk about some of the more recent stuff he's been working on as well so anyways i have gone on far too long um but again, this might be the last time I have uh, an intro to uh, Puff Up Ron Friends, who is, again, one of my favorite artists uh, and just one of my favorite comic people. Um, always willing to, you know, say some, you know, great story. He always has some great stories to uh, kind of bring out and uh, share with fans. And um, I've never 
a chance to meet him in person. I hope that happens this year. Um, as I think right at the end of the podcast, I don't know if I cut it off at, at that point or not, but I'm going to be in his relative area. Hopefully I, it was supposed to happen a few years ago and that didn't happen, but I'm hoping I'm in his relative area, uh, this September. And so I'll be able to, uh, in Labor Day weekend. So maybe just maybe I'll get to see Ron friends in the flash. And that'll be after the podcast is officially concluded. I almost feel like I should do an addendum just to say I met him. He's great. Um, but anyways, uh, thank you so much for downloading this episode. We're getting near the end and I'm getting wistful. Um, you know, especially as I said, like this is the last time I'll probably talk to Ron friends on the show at least. Um, so, uh, you know, I really hope you enjoy this. This was a lot of fun to be able to kick back with the creator. I enjoy and really talk about, uh, his work and the most recent stuff he's been doing and what that's like. So anyways, thank you so much for listening. You can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation, the ninth on Comic Shenanigans with Ron Friends. Enjoy. Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Adam, and it is a pleasure to be with you. No, it's interesting. This is somehow your ninth appearance so far, um, which is... You know, that's a lot, and I'm really excited every time you come on. I'm always so thrilled that I have the chance to talk to you, and it's, uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, you're very kind, and uh, where else would I go? Where else could I find somebody that appreciates the work as much as you do? (laughs) I mean, we did did two episodes on A Next, for crying out loud. That was uh, one of my favorite joys, was being able to document that and have so much of that, like, discussion, because, you know, if people, you know, there are people out there who love A Next, and now they have this repository, this, you know, this two-part episode with partly with you and also with Tom uh, joining for the second part, and that's you know that's a treasure trove like you know when i was a fan if there ever had been spots for me to go to like when i was a kid back issue magazine didn't exist and i didn't I didn't know it existed right. for a while so if i had right. if i had known these things existed i would have devoured them that's exactly right and you can find that only on comic shenanigans <laughs> absolutely because uh, we have ne- never done that before i i just did a superman podcast uh it just dropped on sunday of where the gentleman wanted to talk wanted to talk about Superman Blue, which doesn't happen all that often either. But you're right; everything is somebody's favorite. So it's uh, it's been very you know gratifying and and fun and flattering that uh, that people still remember this stuff the way they do. So I mean that, that's the best we can hope for in this job, and it is our greatest pleasure. I haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, but I was excited about it because, again, your work on there is fantastic. And yeah, you're right; it's it's not often talked about as much as maybe it deserves to be. But I'm glad that you know someone was able to sit you down and talk to you about it. And I, I think, and, and this is going to kind of bring the mood down for a second, so I do apologize. But you know, as beloved creators do get older, and I'm not talking necessarily about you because you're still fairly young, but we've, we've recently lost George Perez. We've lost. Um, you know, Neil Adams. And so the fact that, you know, people can do these interviews and really talk about the work, first of all, tell you how much the work meant to them, which is important for fans to be able to, you know, express that love to creators and be able to actually communicate with you guys. And then to also, you know, kind of pull back the curtain on some of this legendary work and really have a better understanding of it is so valuable while everyone's still around to do so. No, you're not wrong. Um, And I, I think for the most part, the, the creators themselves tend to appreciate that. I mean, you know, I, I've worked with Sal Basema for years, and, 
and you know he never used to go to conventions when he was when he was doing two you know penciling and making two books a month <laughs> months he wasn't doing he wasn't doing conventions and, and he was you know working his schedule and feeding his family and and uh, doing incredible work and as he has had a chance to do conventions and and actually talk to the fans i mean it, it's amazing to him the the you know the deep rooted love that people have for this material and and i understand it because i was a crazy i mean he was a fan of comic illustrators and comics and stuff and if you were a fan you get it mm -hmm. you know uh, i was that kind of fan of, of sal and his brother john and john ramita senior and and there are certain stories that could tear me up and tear me up and and uh the fact that other people have reacted to some of the work that uh, DeFalco and I have done uh, that way is uh, is an incredible well it, it's, a, it's a privilege it, you know to, to if I can entertain people if, if I have had some luck entertaining people the way I was entertained by these books then I I couldn't ask for more than that I mean I, I fondly remember all of my childhood memories of, of comics. And in fact, these days, if you, if you see me in a comic store, chances are I'm in the back of issue bins <laughs> rebuying things I remember from when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> One thing I should say about you and Tom, I mean, obviously you're natural storytellers and you work together, uh, you really have this great symbiosis, but both of you are great storytellers just uh, or as orators. Um, so whenever I see either one of you or both of you at the same time on podcasts, it's always a pleasure to listen to you guys tell stories because um, you just are natural storytellers. You have a good way of kind of spinning a story, and so it's always very natural and it makes it that much more engaging to listen to you guys. Well, I appreciate that. Tom has gotten much, much, much better. <laughs> uh, when he first started out, it was it was like listening to paint dry or you know <laughs> having having your own skin peeled off layer by layer, uh, and uh, I used to to rib him about it, but he has gotten much better at it in, in this age of podcasts and doing as many interviews as he's done, and it's it's a pleasure. Yeah, he's got a a great sense of humor. He's very laid back, you know, for all the respect and awe he has duly earned, but has. In, you know, gets from the, the fans because he was editor in chief and mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he he's one of the most laid back, average, normal, wonderful, loving guys I know. So yeah, consider him a dear, dear friend. Now I want to go back just for a moment to George Perez because obviously he inked you on Hobgoblin Lives Part One or Issue One, I should say. Um, and I think we have talked about that before because obviously we did kind of a spotlight episode on that. But again, in light of, of George's recent passing, um, what was that experience like to be inked by him? I, it was terrific. I, I only wish it could have worked out for, for all three issues, but, you know, he was being called on to even bigger projects, you know, that kind of thing. He inked all three covers and inked the first issue, and I, I didn't have any interaction with him at the time. In fact, you know, all my friends and fellow pros talk about their interactions with George at conventions. Of course, Brett Breeding knew him very well uh, and chatted with him several times. Um, I have I never had the pleasure uh, he was at some Pittsburgh shows, and I we might have said hello in passing, but you know those are busy times. Uh, so I was I, I was really happy about it. I thought the synergy worked, um, and uh, you know would have really enjoyed seeing the complete three issues done that way. Uh, I I followed George from the very beginning. My 
the first time I saw George uh, Perez's name was when he was an assistant to Rich Buckler on a black and white Gulliver of Mars story in the back of some Marvel black and white uh, magazine. And uh, it may well have been his first job for Marvel. I don't even know. But, uh, but I, you know, I recognized the name and saw the dynamics in the work and, and, you know, made a note, a mental note to seek him out. And of course, from there he went, I mean, he did all kinds of things, but he went on to like, uh, Sons of the Tiger, uh, in uh, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, which he was terrific on that. He re-energized that strip along with Bill Manlow and then co-created the White Tiger with Manlow. And, you know, it, it, so I saw the, the growth of this guy. His talent is just amazing. His enthusiasm was always what really came through on the page. Mm. His enthusiasm for the characters and his enthusiasm for the form. Uh, so it didn't surprise me at all that he became the cornerstone figure that he, that he did become for this industry, you know. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that, you know, above and beyond his talent, a lot of that just came from George being George at conventions. I mean, you know, you've seen them all over Facebook and all over social media, all the stories of just always smiling, always positive, always had a kind word and, and uh, you know, uh, 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 mm-hmm. positive energy for anybody who, you know, either showed them work or, or talked about his work or whatever it was. I mean, he was, you, you could not have asked for a better ambassador for comics than, than George mm-hmm. Perez. I mean, it was just, that's who he was. And I say that having lived in the same world as Stan Lee. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean it. Uh, George was that. Uh, genuine, and I, I have not heard a single person have a single bad word to say about about George. Uh, you know, a fan personally at a convention, or even a professional who worked with him. You know, uh, worked with deadlines with him and stuff. I mean, it's just you know, the 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 only reason that George didn't do all three issues of Hobgoblin Lives is because, as I said, some larger project uh, beckoned him. You know, uh, and that's the way the industry works sometimes. Were you surprised when they kind of said that, oh, he's going to be inking you? Not not in any yes. way to say that you're not worthy of having, like, you know, someone like George Perez inking you, but obviously he's he's a penciler. Well, like, thank he, you. Thank you for care- clarifying that. <laughs> uh, no, I was surprised for a couple of reasons. One, George never had much of a connection to Spider-Man. Mm. And and two, you're right. Primarily, he's a penciler. So yes, I was surprised that to hear that he was going to do it. But then, as I saw the work coming in, I went, "All he's doing is making me look good." So I'll sit back and enjoy the ride. You know, absolutely. I mean, again, that that for I mean, obviously, all the issues are good because you're the one penciling them. But you're right; there is something special in that alchemy in that in that first issue because uh, it's just it's it's really special looking. Well, that, that cover image from the first issue has been used for T-shirts and a few other things. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite images that I've had a hand in of Spider-Man. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was terrific. All three covers were actually, you know, a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, it was it was quite an experience. But yeah, unfortunately, as I said, I never really had any personal interaction with George to speak of. Mm-hmm. So, having had a chance to work with him was. Uh, was what I had to settle for, you know? 
as an as an artist, and so obviously that's George Perez. What a, what about Neil Adams? Like, what did he mean to you as an artist? Well, again, I I remember Neil Adams from when I was what like ten or eleven, and he was doing uh, World's Finest and Lois Lane covers, you know, and, and things like that for DC when he was first first broken the and his covers were just out of this world. I mean. You know, literally, one of the covers that sticks in my brain that I put up on Facebook when uh, when he passed was a Superboy cover where the lighting on it is just gorgeous and the coloring is just gorgeous where Superboy's up on the moon looking back at Earth and he has exiled himself for some reason, you know? Mm. But, but I remember very early, the, the earliest interior I remember from Neil Adams was a, a Superman-Batman Revenge Squad World's Finest story that uh, was just... Remarkable, and and you know from the very beginning, you could see what he was doing with the panels was different and exciting, and you know lent a lot of energy to the to to the artwork and to the the page layout and everything. Uh, you know, then it was a Brave and the Bold with Batman and the Creeper, and he did like one of the best Creepers I've ever seen next to Steve Ditko. So, uh, but again, I remember him from the time I was a kid up through him. You know, I. I Curiously enough, of you know, I, I followed him on Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I loved that series. Uh, it hit me at just the right time when I was, you know, in the early seventies when I was in double, early double digits, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, but what, what I never saw was originally was his X Men run. Oh, really? That was not something I experienced. I remember having a sporadic relationship with the X Men, and I, I saw like. Like issue fifty, one of the Stoanko issues, I had that, and that was crazy. And then I, I don't remember. I don't think we ever had a Neil Adams. Uh, the, the next uh, X Men we got was the final issue of that run that, that Sal Buscema and Sam Granger came in and did, where they fight the Hulk in, in Las Vegas, which has always been one of my perfect comic books. But yeah, I, I didn't wasn't aware of the Neil stuff until much later. Uh, and I think it's wonderful. I think it's terrific. But uh, that wasn't something I followed at the time. But when he came over to Marvel and did the Avengers and the Kree Scroll War and everything, I was on board for all of that stuff. Sure, sure. Now, did you get to interact with him at, at any conventions or anything in your nope. professional capacity? Or no, no, I never had a direct conversation with him. I was at a couple of shows that he was at, and and I heard him speak once or twice. And uh, you know, but no, I never never had the pleasure. Um, you know, I've lived vicariously through Tom DeFalco because he's had interactions and adventures with all these different people from time to time, and, you know, being, being as highly placed in the industry as he was and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but no, unfortunately, no. I, I'm just a fan who, <laughs> you know, loved, loved their work like everybody else, you know? Now, from, I mean, they're obviously kind of a generation apart, uh, more or less, but, I mean, from them as artists... Was there anything that they had an impact on your art or how you interacted with the art? Or was, was there anything of their work that you were like, well, I, I want to do something like that? Or anything that had an impact sure. on you in that way? No, I mean, I, I, there's, there's no denying that, you know, Neil Adams was a slightly different direction from the Kirby route than, than I tend to go. Joe, I was I went more the, the Perez route. Uh, but... I mean, you know, uh, one of my closest friends in the industry, Pat Olive, uh, was very much a Neil Adams fan. Uh, 
and we discussed Neil Adams at length when we shared studio space and everything, and I always appreciated the man's illustrative work, um, but but I was always more in the George head space, you know, with, you know, not quite so many lines, not quite so illustrative, but the dynamics in George's work were something that you had to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And and I will cop to, I don't think it's in my professional work, but before I got in pro, you know, I, I did sample pages and I would do drawings and everything and I would, uh, you know, copy George and, and do some of those, uh, I'm sure there's some things in my sketchbooks with the blocks, with the little, uh, the little round bricks that he would do, <laughs> the little minute little things that he would do in the background and everything, uh, that, that were probably very much the precursor to my black block that I still use to this day on commissions, you know. Mm. So you could say that, that that, the root of that comes from what, you know, some of the work that George used to do with overlapping panels and, and design elements in the background rather than a full background, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's something I owe to George right there. But it, mostly it was in it was in the dynamics and the stance. I mean, because he was very much uh, bred from the classic, you know, Kirby Ramita Basema route, I think, and, uh, and and took it some really fascinating places. I mean, when he would ink himself uh, and when he would do full pencils, I mean, certainly he was second to none, you know, he would be bowed to no image guy when it came to detail <laughs> and, uh, and technique, but, but he always had the, uh, you know, he never let the technique overtake the weight of the figures and the power of the figures and the dynamics of the figures. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I think that's what, you know, he was, he, he was able to, to serve both sides of that equation, you know, both audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's one of the reasons he was as huge as he was. As a fellow artist, when he, I mean, obviously one of the things that he's really well known for and celebrated for is, is obviously the, the incredible detail, but also the giant group shots. You know, like it, you couldn't get right. more people in an image than George Perez could. Um, as right. a fellow artist, does that make you exhausted to even look at? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, quite, quite frankly, there, there were some of the later jobs that, that George did, like Crisis on Infinite Earths and everything, just by its very nature, it, it could physically tire your eye out, you know, while looking at the page. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he was getting so much in there that was necessary to the, the type of story they were telling. But, yeah, I mean, from, from all the stories I've heard, George loved that kind of thing. You know, um, and and some things you do because you need to do them. Some things you do them because you really enjoy doing them. From what I've heard, George really enjoyed doing those group shots. That's why he liked doing team books and stuff. I'm not quite there. I, you know, the the one misunderstanding it's sort of a misunderstanding that I've had even with Sal is that you know Sal thinks I love drawing city backgrounds, cityscapes, and backgrounds. I don't love it, but I do it. <laughs> You know, because because if you do, especially if you're doing Spider Girl or Spider Man, you know, New York is a character in the book. You can't you can't avoid drawing the buildings. But if you look at some of Sal's later graphic work, you could see where he found ways to avoid drawing buildings occasionally. You know that kind of thing. So yeah, like I said, there's some things we do because it serves the story and it needs to be done, and other things we do because we love it. And I. All, from all accounts, George loved doing group shots. And when you see the number of posters and panels and 
double covers and things he did, just challenging himself to see how many characters he could get on it. <laughs> he must have loved it. You know, he must have loved it. For so, sure. Yeah. I, that's great. You're right. You couldn't have done that many and not had an affinity for it and enjoyed right. it in some way. Right. I mean, I, I did an Avengers pinup with like 13 characters on it, no background. I enjoyed it. I'm, I was happy with the finished product, but I wasn't going, now I need to do 14. You know, I mean, it, it's. <laughs> it, he was one of a kind. He really was one of a kind. No doubt about it. God bless him. Absolutely, and as you said, kind of universally beloved. Like no one, as you oh, said, yeah. I haven't heard any any crosswords ever about him. No, no. So let's talk about something a little bit more current. So last week, so as we record this, uh, today is what the twenty fourth of May. Uh, so last week, you and Tom DeFalco actually had a new story come out uh, in Thor number twenty five that was released last week. Um, so I, I want to know, kind of, you know, where did the pitch come from? Like, did they come to you and say, "Hey, we're doing a, a Thor anniversary issue. We need to have you guys on, on this." Like, what was what was that discussion like? Well, we were approached to do a ten page story that was going to be part of the first anniversary issue. Originally, we were slated for 24, mm. which was like, what, the 750th issue or something like that? Gotcha. Uh, I forget. I forget. Whatever it was in the legacy numbering, it was something big, too. <laughs> uh, so they approached us for that because they said they were going to get other people to do backup stories, and we were going to do uh, Odin Has Died and pick a character and do a 10-page story with, you know, the dynamic between that character and Odin and all this. And you were welcome, if you had spent some time on Thor, you were welcome to make it, you know, uh, uh, connected to your run on the book. So, you know, we we kicked around a couple of ideas. We thought about doing Heimdall uh, from our run. Uh, but we settled on the Enchantress because, you know, one of the first characters we handled in Thor in our first fill-in issue was the Enchantress. It was the Enchantress talking to Lorelai about what happened in the Secret Wars, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we felt a bit of a connection to Amora. So we decided to do Amora, and we decided to place it after the the War of the Pantheons. uh, And you know, kind of reconnect with some of what was going on there. You know, Tom went back and reread those stories, so did I, and kind of hashed out 10 pages of an interaction with, with Odin. And I, I like what we came up with, uh, well, because all those characters appealed to me. I loved all the Asgardian characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Loki, by the time Tom and I got to Loki, the guy was not all that conflicted anymore. He was pretty much Loki, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, I love what they did in the movies with the relationship between Thor and Loki, and and even with Loki being killed a couple of times and coming back as a child and everything. They've they've definitely added many, 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 many layers to Thor's relationship with Loki. But during our run, where you know Thor finally decided to kill Loki. It was really just Loki had fallen into his incredible hate for his brother and was really unable to see past that. So what what interested us, you know, beyond that with Amora is Amora is always conflicted. She's always conflicted with covering her own ass 
And what, what always fascinated me about Amora, because I, I knew women like this, not of course to the extent of Amora, is because of her very ability to enchant men, she doesn't, you know, we, we handled some, some scenes where Heimdall really cared for her, but she couldn't believe it hmm. because of her own nature. Right, and there are some people who, whether because they don't feel they're worthy of it or whatever, they that you can that you can try to convince them that you care for them and that you want the best for them and that you love them, but they have a hard time believing it. You know, they think it's just because they put out, or they think it's just because of the way they look, or they think it's you know that you're just having pity on them or whatever it is. And and I saw Amora. Uh, and discussed it with DeFalco at, at length that, you know, we both saw her as that that kind of a trapped personality. That, you know, she's been given opportunity after opportunity to to pick the good side, but her own cowardice and her own need to be, to feel safe and protected have betrayed her, you know, which is, you know, from the very time, first time we met her, you know, when, when something got a little tough for her, she went, saw the uh, executioner, she you know, went and got uh, scourged, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I always found their, their relationship fascinating because he was another character like Heimdall, who I think he really loved the Enchantress, you know, for who she was, for you know, all the warts and all. <laughs> Scourge loved Amora, but Amora couldn't buy it. You know, he, he just figured out. No, he's like every other guy. He just he's just enchanted by me. You know that kind of thing. Um, so that's we we wanted to kind of take that element of who Amora is, and 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 then just do a couple of a quick ten page interaction between her and the All Father, um, where Odin again gives her a chance to come clean because. Thor has always believed she has it in her. Um, and, you know, kind of the tragedy of the moment where she's given an opportunity and doesn't take it again. And uh, that was basically what we what we set out to do with those 10 pages. I think, I think we succeeded. Uh, we got Brett Breeding to ink it, which was just fantastic working with Brett again on Thor characters. Um, it was great doing Odin. It was great doing Asgard. I always enjoyed. I always had a very specific idea based on Kirby's Asgard and and throwing in elements of some other people's Asgards. I always had a very firm idea of what it looked like to walk an Asgardian street and and all this kind of stuff. Uh, actually, I thought the first movie came. The first two movies came very very close to what my picture was always of Asgard, <laughs> but. Then we got bumped from, <laughs> we were told what happened was, I guess the illustrator for the main feature, uh, I guess they were working off a full script, but they decided that some of the splash pages should be double splash pages. Okay. And I don't know whether they asked permission to do it first or they just turned, started turning them in. Uh, that I have, I have no clue, but uh, we were informed very late in the game after everybody had hit their deadlines and everything uh, and hustled to do so. We were informed that we were going to be pushed back to issue 75 uh, and, and we got bumped from the, from the bigger anniversary issue. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? 
We, we, Tom and I haven't even got a phone call about the Spider-Man anniversary, and we're kind of laughing about it. Well, given we were bumped from the Thor anniversary, I guess we shouldn't expect a phone call on the Spider-Man anniversary. Oh, I hope. But I understand. I haven't. I haven't seen the published book. I, uh, I, I saw you know the, all the coloring on it, the lettering, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But I haven't made it out to a comic shop recently to uh, to pick up a copy. My comps haven't arrived yet, so uh, I trust that it looks as good as possible. But it was fun because it got to bring back, you know, nobody picked up on what we would, some of what we did during our run. The, the Crimson Hawks, mm-hmm. uh, Odin's Imperial Guard, you know. Yeah. Uh, there, the, there was a, a, a female commander of the Crimson Hawks. And uh, just, you know, things like that. It, it was fun to get back in to remember some of the stuff we were doing that unfortunately other other teams never really picked up on because Thor is such a character has been around for so long that it's, it's one of those things that different creators have very disparate ideas mm. about what makes a really good Thor story and, and none of them are wrong you know mm-hmm. but uh, I mean the character that they're doing now from what I've observed the you know, they're very comfortable saying, you know, with a Thor that kind of walks around with this attitude, like, hey, I'm a god. Mm. You know, like those stories where he was in conflict with Iron Man and, and was, you know, almost being uh, condescending to a fellow Avenger and everything. That was never the character that I saw. That I always felt that if you took Thor in that direction, you were turning your back on the Marvel origin of Thor, the whole idea that he was uh, uh, egotistical and, and uh, arrogant and that Odin put him in Don Blake to teach him humility. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, if you forget that, whole, that Thor is all these magnificent things and humble, then you're not really doing Marvel's Thor. You know? Yeah. My personal opinion, but and it was one of the things I thought they did really well, even with with the absence of Don Blake. I thought they did it very well in the first Thor movie, where you know he he was powerless and was you know spent spent days trying you know functioning amongst his human new human friends and and learning uh, learning some humility, and that was just a huge huge part of you know, for me who this character was. I mean, we got to play with it in um, the 2010, 2011 uh, five issue miniseries we did with Thunderstrike, where we oh, uh, sure. did, where we did the, the legacy Kevin as Thunderstrike, and that was you know some his interaction with Thor was was a lot of that, and uh, and and that's you know basically where Defalco and I stand on the character. It's not necessarily where everybody stands, and that's great. That's what makes for a variety of uh, treatments and stories, and the way it should be. Was was there ever a thought uh, when they first kind of come and say, "Hey, there's a spot in an anniversary Thor book that you would do another Eric story," or is it was that kind of off the table? Yeah, that was not that was really not the option. I mean, for one thing, even if we had thought to do Thunderstrike, Thunderstrike never really interacted with Odin. Not much. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah, Eric really didn't interact with Odin until he was until he was gone. Mm. You know, because you know, Odin shows up. In uh, uh, oh come on, Mahala, uh, in the last issue of Thunderstrike, you know, uh, because of Thor, Eric ends up in Mahala in his Thunderstrike form, 
And Odin shows up and says, Thor, you know he doesn't belong here. And Eric says, he's right, Thor, I'm just a guy from Long Island. Come on. And, mm-hmm. and, he, and he transforms into uh, Eric and walks into a shaft of light, and Odin is there for that, you know. Uh, but that's... that's really, like I can't think... I, I can't think of a, of a single page where Eric as Thor or Thunderstrike was face to face with Odin, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because because we were doing that whole long epic where Loki had possessed Odin's form. That's right. And so when Eric was Thor, a lot of his interactions with Odin were Loki and Odin's body, and uh, he didn't think much of it because <laughs> of that, you know. True. So. So yeah, even if we would have gone that direction, I, you know, we did get a chance to touch back on Eric for that Thor the Worthy one shot, and that was fun. Absolutely. You know, we, we it, it would be a pleasure to work on any of those characters again. I, it, you know, Tom and I laugh because it doesn't take us long to get back into the groove. You know, I mean, we it's not like we sit around for weeks. You know, rubbing our hands together, wondering, can we do this again? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> we get on the phone, we start throwing some ideas around, and all of a sudden, I mean, coming up with 10 pages shouldn't be too tough for anybody that's independent business as long as we have, you know. Well, that's the thing. Like, you guys do such great work, and the, so the, these most recent ten pages we've been getting at Marvel um, have been fantastic. And so, one thing I thought was interesting is that looking at the Spider-Man, I guess what self-improvement that you did, the the yeah, one shot, yeah, yeah. ten pages there. You did the one on the Thor the Worthy, and then this special, uh, or the, at the end of this issue, what I found was interesting is that looking at each story, the last page of each story. You have an emotional beat. You have, in, in Thor's case, or Thunderstrike's case, it was more of a positive, uplifting one. But for Spider-Man and Amora, it was a, a much more emotional kind of downbeat moment. And it's interesting how they all kind of end on that very emotional core. And so I really like that kind of thorough line amongst your work, is that in each one you have this kind of emotional crescendo uh, that builds and you get in that last page. And part of me hopes that I can maybe buy that last page, because I have the other two last pages. <laughs> Oh, you do at this point, really? I do actually, yeah. Okay. Maybe it's well, why. Uh, maybe I'm it's why. To, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember if uh, if Brett inked that on the boards or if he inked it blue line. Mm. Because if if he did ink it on the board, if, if he did ink it blue line, then uh, you know if I get my pay, when I get my pages back, you're welcome to it, but it would only be the pencils. Right. Uh, you know, and I could certainly speak to, to Brett about uh, about the the, uh, the eggs, but um, that that's very kind of you to say. I, I appreciate that. Um, and, and yeah, when you have ten pages to play with, I mean, the, I mean, Tom and I are never going to do something that's not specific to the character. Hmm. I remember one of the things that Tom used to hammer into me very early on, as far as storytelling, was that you know. A Captain America should be a, a Captain America story should be a Captain America story. You shouldn't be able to take what happens and switch out Daredevil mm-hmm. and have it work the same way because a Daredevil story requires it to be about Daredevil, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> and so he's always been very much uh, uh, a structure guy, and part of that structure is making sure that the story is specifically about who the story is featuring. So yeah, we. Uh, you know the, the Spider-Man story tied back back into the, the core of who he is and, and why he does what he does, and and uh, in a way, so did the Thunderstrike story, and so did the Amora story. You know, I mean, it's uh, 
it's one of those things that when you're telling a story about character X, it should, you know, it should be about character X and why character X does what they do, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, that's always going to kind of going to be our approach to it. And, uh, it's worked for us so far. <laughs> I mean, it's been fun touching back with these characters. No denying. I mean, I, I I've loved every minute of it. If it's especially when it's something we've done before, you know. I mean, it, sure. if it's something that that we had some success with, and that the fans might actually want to see. Tell me something. In issue twenty five, is is ours the only backup, or is there some other? Are there other features in it? Uh, there's one other backup. One other backup. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when, they, were, they were basically treating it like it was two anniversary issues in a row. Yeah, I guess so. The, the one others. was a legacy anniversary, and the other one was the, the new numbering anniversary. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky when they can do that, right? <laughs> well, it's uh, overly complicated, for sure. Absolutely, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But okay. But um, okay, if they, can get the, if they can get the two, the talent together, then go for it, you know. Um, on the, th- on the, the Amora story, the, on the, I think it's the eighth page, um, when you have, uh, first of all, I love your depiction of Odin and his fury when you have kind of him angry and then you have the, like kind of the, the eye, like the face above him, um, kind of, yeah, yeah. and so you have this great shot there and then right below it, you have this great panel where it's the two sides of, of Odin's face. And one is when he has the fury and then he's got the, you know, the pity and just the dichotomy of emotion with Amora kind of trapped in the middle. I just loved the interpretation there. Um, the, well, thank you. Because thank you, you have him also, I mean, that's often, you know, the classic Odin, right? Being so angry and fury, you know, wrathful. And then also having this this gentle side that doesn't always come out right away. And so I liked how you framed it with both eyes and then just her in the middle. I thought it was a really interesting touch. Well, thank you. I appreciate your, you know, your, your noticing that. I appreciate your response to it. Because, yeah, I, I, yeah, I like Odin. I, you know, Tom and I like Odin. I, we... We've seen all the different treatments that, that you know, and, and I always felt over the years through Stan Lee and and, uh, and and through Jerry Conway that, you know, Odin can play the villain because he's playing three-dimensional chess, but he's not a villain. He's, and, and, he, and he is Thor's father. He loves his sons, you know. I mean, so he's, I think he's a... a, 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 a an incredibly, which sort of, you know, eternally fascinating character. Uh, but, you know, we were never afraid to show that on top of all the, the, the anger and the brusqueness and the, I gotta be king and all this kind of stuff, that he loved his kid, you know, and that he ultimately was proud of his kid. And, uh, so, so it's always fun to show that side of him, the, the, the more paternal side. And, and that's very much, you know, uh, what, what we were playing off of in the, in those ten pages is that Amora was thinking, wait a minute, I've been invited to his private to his, to his private uh, chambers, then maybe this is my shot. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I can get Odin under under my control. And of course, you know, that never occurred to Odin. It was all about, you know, I'm sorry, your sister died, and you know, let's talk about. The fact that you're a part of this family, and you know, we want, you know, we wish you acted more like that. You know, that you were a part of the family and things. And uh, but yeah, when he when he again when Amora tries, she she plays her gambit. She tries. His first response is rage, but but it quickly becomes 
sadness and pity because, you know, it's like you're just not getting this. Mm-hmm. You know? Thor believes in you. I believe in you. Stop this shit. You know, <laughs> and and come be a part of this, you know? Stand for something. You know, because, I mean, Odin, in my opinion, Odin created an entire culture around defending the little guy. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a when you have a, a, a community, a civilization of gods, basically, they need to mean something. They need to have a purpose. And the purpose that Odin gave the Asgardians was to be the good guys, to be the, the peacekeepers, to help the little guy, to defend the defenseless. You know, their poetry is about that, in my, in, in my view. Their songs are about that. You know, the, the fighting the righteous battle is, is what their entire culture is built around. That's what their statues are of. That's what, you know, what their artwork is. That's, that's who they are. And I always thought, you know, that's a great way to channel these godlike creatures who, you know, who want to fight and love and, and need to go out and do stuff, you know, at least he's channeling it into something positive, you know? So, uh, that's, I, I think he's a fascinating, endlessly fascinating character. And, uh, I've always loved any scene we've done with, with Thor and, and Odin. I mean, we've done our share of the scenes where Odin's PO'd at him and, <laughs> and taking away his power and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we also have done our share of scenes where they've embraced, and we've done our share of scenes where when uh, the uh, the Rainbow Bridge was destroyed and Odin, uh, uh, Asgard was falling into the negative zone, Odin wasn't sure he was ever going to see Thor again. Yeah. And he has a conversation with the, the vizier where he says that, you know, I always wanted him to rule Asgard, but now I see that his light shines brighter than just Asgard. You know, he's he's there for the entire multiverse, and uh, he couldn't be prouder. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know, I've never been a dad other than with uh, some some animals, but uh, <laughs> that's being a dad. You know. Yeah. I want to talk for a minute about that final page that I, I was kind of mentioning before how much I enjoyed it and so I was curious about some of the choices that I really like about it so in that you have on the top of the of the page you have the one panel of both Amora and Odin separated but still it's one panel and then when you go to the next they're still in the same room but you have it now divided panels so there's two separate panels of him talking and him waiting giving her the opportunity right. to to be truthful and then her deciding not to um, and then in the panels after that, again, now they're in the same shot, but you still have a panel break between them, um, and you have his his text is just you know him realizing that yes, she's going to be who she's going to be, and then all of her and I'm curious if this was your direction or if this is just the letterer, um, all of her thoughts are now just in her particular panel, like they're not bleeding over at all. Right. It's just crowding her thought. It's almost and. I hope this comes across the right way. It's almost as if her thoughts are too loud and too much that they're overcrowding her mind, just like they're overcrowding the panel. Like, I take it to be a positive. But it was interesting to have all those well, words in there, and it's almost like it's, she's right. suffocating herself in her own delusions. Well, that, that's terrific. But, yeah, I mean, she's certainly, 
you know, it's for one thing we had we had to rethink the uh, uh, the the captions leading into and coming out. The narration of Amora coming into the story and going out of the story was added when we were taken away from all the other stories that were about characters interacting with Odin. Oh, interesting. Okay. okay. Uh, we we kind of refer. Tom rewrote a couple of captions, and I think that's kind of what he ended up doing on that final panel. Was he he wanted to to he had to because we started that way had to return to Amora looking back on this incident, and she still tends to justify her choices, but she's left to wonder. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, as far as the, uh, the first scene, it's a long scene. There's some distance between them. That, of course, is what it's, that's meant to say. I, uh, the, the, the reason that the second tier is divided is because, one, the characters are divided, and two, we need to beat. Hmm. You know, whenever you need to beat visually, then you put a pin up order. You know, that kind of Plus the fact they're standing further apart than that, so there's that. It's the camera reframing, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But yes, the reason that the, the final larger panel is actually divided is, again, because the characters are divided and because we wanted this separate beat of Odin. And, and do you remember what Odin is saying in that? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Well, I had yeah, it in front of me. Hold on. Oh, okay, yeah. What's Odin's, what's Odin's copy? What is Odin saying in that? His word to live. I see. Yeah. And that is after spending ten pages more than once referring to Odin as the all-seeing. Mm. So, you know, he, he knows what's going on. He's, he's omnipotent, you know. So he, he is Odin the all-seeing. So when he says... You have any idea what happened to uh, Scourge's axe? And she goes, uh, "No." <laughs> it means everything. Then he says, "I see." Mm -hmm. it, and it speaks to his disappointment, and it speaks to the fact that he knows what's going on. And there's a part of Amora that knows he knows what's going on, <laughs> and that she just blew it again. You know, <laughs> just one more time, she is. You know, she has been. Asgard has given her an opportunity to, to be a part of something larger and once again her own limitations have, have and, you know kept her from being able to do it and I, I find her a very tragic character you know I, I think she's uh, again just you know fascinating I, it, it's no <laughs> it's no surprise that you know Jack Kirby and Stanley just mm -hmm. gave us this gold <laughs> you know, to explore in different ways and, and pairing up the characters in different ways and stuff. And, and you know, and, and, and having the Enchantress and, the Odin, and Odin interact in a way, you know, that wasn't just him sending her off to some fifth dimension <laughs> to, to, to think about what she did, you know, that kind of thing, uh, was fascinating, a fascinating uh, idea to us. And, you know, we had a lot of conversations about Amora and Odin. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, how we wanted to do this. But, uh, you know, when we came up with the idea of, you know, referring to him as the all-seeing more than once in the captions, and then have, having that final line be, I see, uh, that just really appealed to us, you know, because so he does. I might be misreading or uh, reading too much into this, but I'm curious if maybe... So when he says that, and you have 
the shadows are kind of over his eyes as if he's blind. Is that on purpose? No. The, the shadow is not to show the, 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 not to suggest that he's blind. The shadow is to suggest his disappointment okay. and his, um, you know, he, he can only do so much. He's the omnipotent Odin. He has tried to manipulate Thor in the past. Mm. He tries to get what he wants by affecting circumstances and things like that. But ultimately, any god, man, or goddess, or woman is going to have to make their own choice. Yeah. And, you know, he, he has just witnessed Amora making that same damn choice again. So I wanted to shadow his face just basically to, to kind of bring him within himself, you know, okay. uh, because we have like the vizier reentering the chamber behind him yeah. and, and the guard coming back in and everything. And, uh, you know, this was not a good interaction for Odin. I mean, you know, he invited her over for a meal and to kind of make her feel, you know, to show his, uh, his uh, sympathy uh, for the death of Lorelai and to kind of try to bring her into the family and and she had to go and try to enchant him. <laughs> you know, and it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I almost I almost re-read read into it that, like, because when we're talking about, again, I seeing that maybe that was less, less, uh, like, that maybe his own self-blindness, like, he knows... He knows, and hopefully she knows that you know. He knows that that she, she that he knows. You know? So I'm saying that the same word over and well, over there's, again. There's, I mean, there's all of that. I you mean, know what I mean? Like, but almost if, like if he's, you want to look at it, he's letting her go. Look at it as his, yeah, he, well, he's definitely he's letting her make her own choices, and not you know, and Odin may even know where those choices are ultimately going to lead. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but he always did that with Loki. Um, one of the uh, one of the lines that Tom and I discussed that, that I had liner noted and he, he changed it for a very, very valid reason is in, in one of their discussions, you know, he's, he's pleading with her, basically. He's being very honest with her and he's saying, you know, don't do this. You know, quit being like this. And Tom, there's a line in there where he, he talks about the, the recent war and how many as guardians we lost, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my original idea for that scene was that he was going to actually open up to her and say, I've lost Loki. Mm. I don't want to lose you too. Because how many chances did he give Loki back in the day? True. You know, he, you know, he'd trap him in a tree or something. He'd get <laughs> out. He'd, you know, he'd send him to work for some other wizard for a while, and he'd get a while, he'd get out, and, and it was just constant. But you know, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure Thor was frustrated at the fact that Odin kept giving Loki enough rope. I mean, ultimately, when when Loki defiantly blasted a hole in Susan Austin, that was it. Thor was done. You know, Loki says, okay, now I'm done. You can take me back to Asgard to face Odin's judgment. And Thor just finally said, no. (laughs) No, not anymore. I loved you like a brother when we were kids, and all you ever did was this crap. And, uh, you know, he was just done. And he made the choice to kill Loki. One of my regrets from my run on Thor, Adam, is that we never got a chance 
to deal with. You know, we did the little time paradox where Loki found out Thor kills him, so he he sets up the whole enchantment to be able to possess Odin hmm. uh, in the time paradox because the Loki that finds out that Thor killed him was prior to when Thor kills him. So he was able to prepare for it and thus prevent his own demise. But what we never got a chance to do, we weren't on the book long enough, we went over to Thunderstrike, was the next battle, the next face-off between Thor and Loki, where Loki knows Thor's willing to pull the trigger. Mm. Would that make him more vicious, more psychotic, or would it make him more careful? I would have loved to have explored that, but we, we never got around to it. That's a shame. What do you think? Do you think a Loki who knows Thor is willing to pull the trigger and end him, do you think that makes him more dangerous or less dangerous? I think more dangerous. Yeah. The Loki we were writing, I think it makes him more dangerous. Because I, the Lo- by the time we got to Loki, I felt Loki was very much a sociopath. <laughs> that, you know, he... He didn't really feel a connection to much of anything. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly his jealousy and hatred of Thor was, had become an all-consuming thing for him. He didn't, he didn't have an ambition past that. He, he didn't really want to rule Asgard. He just didn't want Thor to rule Asgard. You know, he just was going to be a spoiler for Thor no matter what. But he pushed it too far. Hmm. You know, he arbitrarily, spitefully... He was actually aiming for uh, Eric Masterson's uh, wife and kid, ex-wife and kid. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's Susan, and and, uh, and and Thor was done. Yeah. So. Last thing I want to ask yeah, about, about this most recent story. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, well, not it's partially comment, partially a uh, question. Um, so you guys open in a very kind of classic manner where you're right in the middle of the action something's happening you have to you know <laughs> figure out what's going on um, and it's only like two pages but it's an exquisite two pages of you know the executioner uh, attacking Amora um, first of all I love the color choices that I guess Matt Wilson uh, put into place here I think it's gorgeous in uh, a very kind of uh, scary red which kind of makes it more dreamlike in some ways because it's less kind of vibrant you have uh, Enchantress obviously has is more colorful in terms of her hands and the green on her uh, I guess arm I don't know what they are gauntlets almost but uh, on, on her outfit but then you have Scourge coming out, out uh, at her in the red um, what, what is it like to be able to you know have start off with a, a nice big splash like that with Executioner uh, that was you know we always want something that, that's going to grab you um, and we discussed a couple of different options, but, um, you know, we, we wanted to reestablish because the, the, uh, the question of, of for Odin is what happened to the axe. Uh, we wanted to establish what, how it was left between her and, uh, and Scourge and that she does have the axe, hmm. uh, and, and took it to earth. And that's what. You know, she helped create Blood Axe, uh, not deliberately, but whatever. Um, the actual, I mean, the, the colorist did some, some wonderful work in that issue, but uh, the idea that we were seeing uh, Scourge through her red shield that he then pierces. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. So I didn't you, realize you that at first. To, you turn to page two, of and course. you see it from Scourge's side, 
and he is uh, he's breaking up the red shield that was and that was something we wanted to do. we wanted it to show rage and anger and all that kind of stuff but uh, the practical aspect of it was that so I hope I hope you still appreciate it as much <laughs> <laughs> definitely um, but that's why her arms are true color and he's on the other side of the shield gotcha well that makes a lot of sense and I appreciate you setting me right <laughs> there you go um, now you mentioned that you know you haven't as of yet received a call about Spider-Man's anniversary but you know if and when the call came is there a specific time period would it be during your run or something else in Spider-Man's kind of kind of long storied history that you personally would like to illustrate if you were given the opportunity I would assume it would be with Tom if you guys did get a call but is there a specific yeah, period mean, you'd like I, to do first let me say I, at this point they're already advertising this stuff so I okay. really doubt will be included um, and then it would it would also be up to the editor I mean the editor plays a huge part in that uh, mm-hmm. because there may be a connective theme there if it were something you know we had the opportunity at one point when they were doing web spinners oh, yeah. um, Tom and I filled out the last two issues of web spinners and you know so the editor wanted us to do something from his cloth black costume phase you know that kind of thing uh, it was during our run that, that dealt with you know, Sandman working for Silver Sable and things like that so it was very much a part of our run but we got a chance to do I, it was finally my chance to do Doc Ock and, and a bunch of the other characters the Sinister Syndicate characters and uh, it was great fun so yeah you usually you try to find something in a situation like that in a celebration like that try to find something that you're identified for known for or something you know I mean if, if we touch back on you know Hobgoblin or The Rose or the relationship with Puma although Mark DeMattis kind of made that his own so uh, you know they're, they're, they're Silver Sable uh, you know I understand she's back from the dead so that's nice <laughs> everyone gets better uh, eventually every yeah which is kind of kind of interesting but anyway uh, so I don't know. I, you know, we if, if we were if we were invited to do it, Tom and I would have one of our famous conversations and and see what appealed to both of us and and what's how, what would I, I hate to use the, overuse this word, but we would we would make a decision on what would what sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what what sounds like something that would be fun for us to do and fun for people to read and. And uh, you know that kind of thing. We don't we don't really try to anticipate what people want to see from us, or what they don't want to see from us, or anything like that. We we just really we're trying to have some fun because mm-hmm. our if we have a secret ingredient, in my opinion, it has always been that I think the fun we are having comes through on the page, and uh, I think what fans we have are our fans because they know they're going to have some fun. They're going to enjoy the story and enjoy the characters and uh, hopefully, you know, see a side of the character they didn't see before or mm-hmm. hadn't thought about before or something. But but just, you know, have a, we want to entertain. <laughs> we want it to be a positive experience. Absolutely. You know? So people who want to check out that Web Spinner story you did, it was in issues 17 to 18, Hero of the People. That's the one where it was inked by Mr. Bob McLeod. I just did breakdowns on it, yeah. But uh, Tom came up with a really neat story where they end up going to a small European country 
uh, Spider-Man takes a job with Silver Sable, and uh, it, it was it was interesting because one of the things we were dealing with in the story was the Beatles transition into Mach One hmm. of the Thunderbolts. You know, he was starting to have second second thoughts about this whole. Uh, you know, uh, mercenary life and uh, constantly getting his head handed to him. It's amazing <laughs> that more. It's amazing that more Marvel villains don't go straight. You know, yeah. that was one of the things I loved about the, the way uh, Tom handled Sandman and the way uh, we we played with. Uh, I mean, we had so much fun with the, the character Crusher Creel and the Absorbing Man in uh, in Thor. Oh, yeah. Because these are guys that just are constantly, as powerful as they are, they're just constantly getting bounced by more powerful people. And at some point, you know they just got to get sick of it. <laughs> and I'm not saying they should put on a costume and become the good guys, because you're still getting people beating on you, you know. But you'd think at some point, they pull they pull that one last job and retire, you know that kind of thing. I, I mean, our big the the one story that we did with Crusher that I loved was uh, the Titania was still stealing, hmm. and he just wanted to lay low. He just wanted to be with his girlfriend and and lay low so no superheroes would come crashing through the wall. And uh, and he finally decided. Uh, I think it was a Thunderstrike story, and he finally decided. You know what? We're just gonna. You're gonna have it out with She-Hulk. That's all there is to it. We're gonna set. We're gonna stop a fight between you and She-Hulk. And and he contacts Thunderstrike, and Thunderstrike actually contacts She-Hulk and says, "Isn't this better than them taking a uh, school bus full of nuns hostage? <laughs> you know, we just, we're gonna go out in the middle of nowhere, and and you and Titania can go at it. And of course, Titania ended up cheating and blah blah blah. But anyway, <laughs> that's a great cover. By the way, this is this is endlessly fascinating characters. I mean, you have characters that are around for 30, 40 years, and, you know, you read the character over the years, and you see what little things the other writers have added, and, and you know, you don't want to do anything that violates where the character has been, but you, you, you know, you want to explore where they might go, and I love Creel. Carl is just one of my favorite characters. Uh, and, uh, I would handle him in a minute uh, in, under any situation. I'm always sorry. Like, I, I was sorry that they turned Sandman villainous again and all that kind of stuff. Cause, you guys like did I such said, wonderful I, work with him. Like, that's that's why I was well, so disappointed. I, you know, Tom did. You know, Tom did that wonderful story where he just has a beer with Thing mm -hmm. and talks about where he's been and where, he went, where he's going and all this. And like I said, I don't need him working for Silver Sable, but he's just... Why wouldn't this guy just want to get a job somewhere and <laughs> work instead of the next, you know, having the Hulk hand his head to him the next time or the FF or whatever, you know. I mean, it's just, uh, I love that when, you know, because I also like, kind of like my villains a little conflicted and not just, I mean, there's, there's a real charm to a full-on psychotic bad guy, no doubt about it. <laughs> You know, we we did it with Hobgoblin. We've we've got plenty of our characters that are irreconcilable, murderous bastards. Okay, but that's not Creel to me. That's not Sandman. That's you know the that's Loki. But that's not these other guys. These human guys who got superpowers and instead of 
being you know being moved by the altruism of the the, the possible altruism of the situation, they went finally I can go get mine, <laughs> and that was you know that's their crime. But I don't see them as you know slaughtering people in traffic for no reason and all this kind of stuff. Which I've always kind of that that darker take on even the the lamest supervillain has always really kind of disappointed me because how do you come back from that? True. You know, once you show somebody as being so psychotic that they don't care if they blow up a family in a car and all that, how do you come back from that and make them even human, you know? So I've always tried to stay away from that. That's a good point, though. Um, before we, we do finish off, I want to spotlight, again, that people should definitely check out your Facebook page because you're always putting up amazing art, it, whether it be commissions you've been working on or, like, old, you know, uh, original kind of drafts of covers you've done or, you know, it's just always a treasure trove of, of cool art, and I just cannot recommend it enough for anyone who's a fan of yours. Well, um, I'm going to gush because I can't ever put into words adequately because, you know, I'd have to leave that to DeFalco. But <laughs> I can I, I cannot thank you enough for your friendship and your fandom and the thought you give this work. I mean, my our conversations over the, uh, the Anex series were some of my favorites and uh, it is wonderful to have the work uh, poured over and appreciated and you know, even dissected and, and you know, that you're so open with your impressions and, and were you going for this or am I reading too much into it and blah, blah, blah. That's a, an incredibly gratifying conversation for, for our creative to have with somebody reacting to their work. And I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, it's always been a pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed your interviews with, with other people as well, but uh, never more than when I could have a conversation with you directly. Before we go, can I ask you about one specific, uh, I guess it was a, a commission, but I, I loved it, and I'm just curious how much of it was put in your ballpark and how much they asked for. Is one with the She-Hulk uh, carrying her FF uniform. Oh, that was actually, actually, if you look close, she's carrying her FF uniform and her regular purple and white thing. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. That, that was very much... I don't know. That, that was very much directed by by the, the, the customer. He actually even sent me the black dress that he wanted her wearing. Oh, really? And he told and he told me he wanted her picking up her laundry of her FF costume and the other purple and white outfit. I, I don't remember if he asked for the law book. He he specifically asked for her wearing glasses. Hmm. Um, but I don't know if he specifically asked for her reading the law volume or not. But uh, but yes, it, that was one of the was very much the idea of the commissioner. But uh, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed that. It, it, I was I was frankly surprised at the response it got. Maybe because of the the She Hulk uh, trailer had just come out or something. But uh, for sure, but it got a really solid response too. But thank you. Yeah, that, I I don't mind at all when they have a very specific idea. Um, but I also you know kind of like it when they let me play a little bit too uh, my my uh, my rep Scott Cress has gotten to the point where you know 
they they ask some customers will ask, well, how much what, what do I how much do I need to tell him? How much of an idea do I need to have? <laughs> and he goes, well, you can get as specific as you want, but I'll also tell you this: if you leave it up to Ron, you're going to get something you like even better, <laughs> which is very sweet of him to say. But especially if it's characters that I know. Mm-hmm. And, and characters that I, I mean it, it leaves it open to like throw in little you know little easter eggs that they make that the fans will like and all that kind of stuff so I, I, I love doing the commissions I really do I've I've really found myself uh, enjoying that uh, in a very very major way I thank God that I found Scott Crest or he found me you know because <laughs> uh, Catskill Comics has been a real uh, a real godsend it's uh, I, every time I look at your page and see all these amazing commissions, I feel, I, and I've said this before to you, all this stress because I really want to get one at some point. I, I want to get on that list at some point, but I'm just so stressed thinking of one. You know what's what's going to be you know something that I you're going to enjoy drawing. I, what's really going to be like something really impactful to me because obviously there's particular characters, especially like Thunderstrike, both him and, and his son, uh, that were big big characters for me too. So like I'm I'm so torn on which ones, and also then there's the th- the of well, it's also going to go up on the Facebook page. It has to be really be good, so that other people will think it's great too. So I stress about it more but than I should. I understand where you're coming from because I I never got a commission from Sal Buscema for that very reason. <laughs> I I wouldn't I I couldn't boil it down to like one thing that I would want from Sal because he's given me so much already. You mm-hmm. know, as far as our, our collaborations and stuff. I, I had one friend of mine who went like 15, 20 years trying to think of the perfect commission and uh, because he had, he had helped me out on something early in the century. Uh, he was giving me some technical advice on, on a strip I was working on. And I always told him, I said, you know, whatever you want to, oh, you want, you know, so whenever you come up with a sketch. And he literally waited 17 years or something like that oh, wow. and, and what he finally came up with was black costume Spider-Man fighting the Punisher but he wanted the original Punisher with the white go-go boots and all that you know, and all this kind of stuff. and I'm like okay cause I, I never draw the Punisher with the white go-go boots because even in the first issue in the inside they're not white <laughs> the colorist colored him all blue except for the skull so I always saw the Punisher as being all black except for the skull, right? But the, the white boots took over. What can I tell you? <laughs> so yeah, I actually I actually did his commission, the two figure commission, and everything. And he was very happy with it. I was happy with it. I ran it on the Facebook page at one point. I don't know when, but uh, it was it was a fun piece. But I, I think the title of the Facebook post was "The Customer Is Always Right." <laughs> yeah. you, want the white go- you want the white go-go boots you get the white go-go boots well, that's funny. So. well Ron thanks again so much for all the time you've spent with me over the years and again on 8X alone we've talked like four hours so um, if we were to add up all the conversations we've had it's it's quite a fair bit of time but I really appreciate all the time you've spent talking about your career with me Adam you're one of my favorite people uh, certainly one of my favorite people that does this uh, that I've met this way but I mean I hope to God we can be in a room together at some point and have a beer and all that kind of jazz but uh, uh, this has been a pleasure for me it really has and uh, you know I, I, I it, it 
it has been a, a true joy for me, uh, and uh, I hope I still hear from you from time to time, even if you're not doing the uh, the podcast. Okay. For sure. Well, for sure. I mean, whenever you do new pay- new stories with uh, with Tom, I always want a page. So you'll definitely hear from me. <laughs> There's that. You know, but touch base every once in a while on private message or something, okay? For sure. Oh, and actually, it's interesting. I actually, I am at the moment planning on being in your vicinity in the next few months, so we'll see. Well, we we are gonna we got to commit. When you say the next few months, you don't mean as soon as June, though, right? No, no, I mean uh, when the Blue Jays visit the uh, visit the uh, Pirates in, in September. Oh, well, hey, if you're going to be in town for any length of time, yeah, please let me know. Absolutely, I will do. Okay, I look forward to it, Adam. Right. You take care of yourself, my friend. You too. Thanks so much for uh, for joining again. It's, it's been great. You're very, very welcome. All right. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.